You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello, Giants fans, and welcome to a new edition of the Valentine's Views podcast here on Fake Review Radio. As we get closer and closer to the NFL draft, I am turning to to people who study this stuff in a lot more detail and, and, and know a whole lot more about breaking down draft prospects than I do to, uh, to get some, some perspective. And today, I have one of the, the preeminent draft analysts, one of the guys whose work I respect as much, if not more, than anyone else is uh, joining me, and that is Matt Waldman of the Rookie Scouting Portfolio. And Matt, you know, thanks for hopping on for our annual uh, draft chat. Yeah, and I always look forward to it because it means, hey, we get a chance to chat, and that's fun. And two, means I'm done with a good bit of my work for the year. <laughs> and I, I can take a little I, break. I was gonna say, are you? Uh, are you, you know, hanging out on the deck, sipping margaritas or playing some golf these days? Or, or what are you doing now that uh, now that the RSP is is out and about? Well, you know, music's a big part of my life. So I'm, I'm getting to practice a little bit more. I'm learning a couple of musical instruments. I was a saxophonist at one time and I've picked up the electric bass. So I'm so I'm uh, so I'm doing a little bit of that. And I'm, I'm actually you know catching up on movies a little bit so that's that's not bad so i i'm pretty happy well cool i mean the more the the more of the rsp that that i went through and i can't say red because it's like reading war and peace it's you know it's, <laughs> yeah you it's gotta massive, skip around but but the more the more that i looked at the more i realized that my draft work is not close to being done yet so, <laughs> so you're killing me. This is the same thing I said to Emery Hunt of Football Game Plan the other day because sure. Emery did his draft guide with a thousand prospects in it. Yeah. And I was like, Em, you got to be kidding me, first of all. And I'm like, the more I read, the more work you're making me do. <laughs> you know, because <laughs> the more I realize I don't know. And, 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 you know, for me, that, for me, that is one of the great things about talking to guys like you. I mean, I can, I can look at, you know, guys on tape. I can look at some of that and I can tell you what I like, but I can't necessarily tell you why I like it. And I think one of the great things about the RSP is not only do you break down prospects, but you go into exhaustive detail about your own process and about how you study and, and about how you, how you rate guys. And, and I'm just curious, you've been doing this for, for how long now? 17 years. And when you started doing it, I mean, how much has your process evolved? I'm just curious. 
Oh, a massive amount because, you know, I didn't play football other than, you know, as a someone who was just serially addicted to playing, you know, in the backyard and playing in, you know, park leagues and things like that, rather than like actual organized games. Um, but I got I, I, I was an operations director for a a large company that ran call centers back in the, you know, the 90s and the early 2000s. And I had learned this certification method or I had basically gotten certified and learned these methods about managing, um, you know, call centers from a wide range of, you know, facets. And one of the things that they, that they talked about with these best practices was how to evaluate performance. And they, they borrowed from manufacturing sectors and other, other sectors and used their own experiences to kind of get people certified on what the best methods were. And that's what I used to create the RSPs process. And the reason I used it and, and go into this detail is because it, the process was designed so that you continue to build on it and learn from it. And if you're doing it right, you're defining everything in detail. You're weighting everything with a certain value and, you, and it gives you your own feedback loop. So the, you know, when I first started doing this, I might as well have been, you know, I mean, the first time I tried to evaluate somebody before I even did this, I remember I was watching Steven Jackson of Oregon state and, you know, I, I woke up, I woke up at the end of the game with my cat on my chest, my notebook <laughs> on the floor, you know, and my beer in my hand, you know, oh and I realized God. that this was probably not really how you need to evaluate people. And, you know, as a, as I've started doing the book, um, what it evolved to was it was like this game of I spy. Think of the I spy games you play with your, your little kids. And it was like everything I saw, I wrote down. I mean, maybe in insane detail, but I would write down things that I didn't even know what they were. I just noticed what I saw, why a safety was moving down, you know, pre-snap to where the shift of the defense was or where the, the player I was evaluating was aligned down to what they did through to the end of the play. And I would have thousands of pages that I had typed out that were just notes. Um, but what that helped me do was I would, as I would go through my process, you know, my process was not as detailed. There wasn't, you know, and so what would happen is I would just, I found that I was evaluating what all the players could do. Like if you were looking at a resume, you'd have like a, a list of bullet points of what they could do. Um, and it would be kind of this broad spectrum of say what a wide receiver could do. But then as I started doing it and noticing things that I either missed in the previous years or as I was going through the process and going, I don't understand what I'm seeing. I need to read some more books on this or I need to, you know, I need to watch more videos on that. And, I, and that would take me to coaching books. I would end up as I would go, I'd end up having customers who were scouts or were wide receiver coaches, or, and then I would have podcasts where that would happen. And I'd start learning more about good resources about the game. And then behind me, I know people won't see this, but behind me is basically a blackboard where, you know, when I, as I update, I'll update things as I go that I'll keep for one or two years. At, and maybe if I'm experimenting with how I'm going to change things, I'll do that. But what ends up happening is 
this evolved from maybe one method of looking at players to two different grading scales to ways that I track players in terms of data. So I'm tracking more data and doing data-based um, info as well, in addition to taking film info and running it through a process. So now what ends up happening is that, you know, the book has become very rich in terms of having a very extensive glossary of terms. Um, it has, you know, these processes that you can go through and anyone really, if they had the time and desire, could take my process and scout with it. I mean, they could literally use it now, you know, learning all the terms and getting, co you know, cognizant with them and being able to be fluent with doing it might take you a few years, you, you know, but it's something that you could literally do. So as a result, this has gone from something that, you know, thought I might would be kind of interesting to do as a sideline to a full-time gig. And it's become one of the, from, according to Alex Brown, who's the director of recruiting at SMU and former director and recruiter at Rice and worked as a recruiter at Houston, um, he says, you know, he visits with scouts weekly. He said this, and um, I'll give a shout out to Dane Brugler. Dane Brugler and I have the two guides that are purchased the most by NFL scouts, at least according to what he sees when he meets with them. And I just study four positions. So, And, and, and they are the two guides that, that I absolutely love. I love Emery's guide for the simple fact that I can find out you know, at least some information about a lot of players that I didn't know anything about yeah. previously. Emery's great. Emery's great. He definitely yeah, deserves a shout he's, out. He's fantastic. But uh, you are most definitely doing, you know, advanced high level math and the rest of us are struggling with algebra. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, you know, at every least year's... I am. <laughs> Every year is a struggle and you're always learning something new. I mean, I, I, as I do this, I'm always learning new things. And that's why now I have this board behind me because I can write down what it is I don't know. And it's usually filled. So, um, you know, that's how it goes. Well, I, I must be learning something from, from all of you guys, because, because this year, the, the doc that I started with prospects is, at a volume level of, of something that that's way deeper than anything I've ever put together before. Cool. And I'm like, so, so I must be learning something <laughs> either that, or I'm just writing down a bunch of gibberish that I, that I'm the only one that understands. Well, that's how I felt for five or six years. That's for sure. But anyway, Matt, let's, let's talk about those prospect groups that you study and, and for people who don't know, you know, Matt is the the guru of skill positions, quarterback, wide receiver, tight ends and running backs. And of course, we can talk some other positions along the way, but those are the positions that you focus on. And those are the four positions that, that we'll talk about. And obviously, we'll do that from a Giants perspective. And Matt, it all comes back. It always, always starts with quarterback. And we know that the Giants are really not in the quarterback market this year, shouldn't be in the quarterback market at the very least. Um, and I, I, there was one line in your guide when you started talking about quarterbacks, and you said simply, this is not the year I'd want to target a quarterback to build my team around. And I think that's where the Giants are. And, and I think it would be a huge mistake for the Giants to reach for for a Malik Willis or a Kenny Pickett in the top 10. Um, those, I think you would probably agree, those are the two guys that would be likely to go in the top 10. 
Um, whether they should or not is a whole different argument, but I, I think you agree with me that, that if they're going to go quarterback, you, you build this year and you do that next year. I would agree. I would absolutely agree with that. You have, you have the makings of a nice core of receivers and you have, obviously, you know, Barkley should be all the way back and be strong. And, and certainly it, this is a team with, you know, Jones and Taylor, they've got their first two quarterbacks pretty much right there that, you know, Brian, the working Davis Webb's a stalwart kind of on as a reserve, the might be interesting to them that they want to see what they have with him in camp and see if he can develop into a backup and maybe, you know, maybe more we'll see, you know, you never know. But I, I think this class is one where he, every the best players in this class either need a little more experience with they're going to need more experience with pro style concepts like Matt Corral. They're either injured and maybe need a red shirt year like Carson strong, or they're completely unheard of in terms of the, the main um, draft media and how they're looking. They're often chasing what the, NFL scouts are sharing with them whether it's accurate or not accurate um, at this time of year. But the the guy that might be the most interesting to me is Kansas State Skylar Thompson, who probably based on his production in an offense that ran the ball first and and threw short to deep in its West Coast design, um, didn't really have the numbers that would merit an early round pick but his tape makes him an intriguing guy and maybe could be gotten early day three. If there's not a team that loves him, that's been quiet about it and trades up into the third round to, to try and grab him. So as a result of that, yeah, this class is one where there's just a lot of ifs with each of the players a little bit, you know, I've always been a proponent for either intermittent play and benching, you know, and not in the, you know, more of like sit and play, you know, off and on throughout the first year um, so that the players don't get overwhelmed and develop bad habits, but they still get field time. And I think that, you know, very few teams do that anymore. And, and this is the, the year that I would say would be paramount in importance for that to happen with most of the players who are coming out of this class. Yeah. It's interesting because you mentioned Skylar Thompson and he is one of the guys that I wrote down in my notes that I wanted to talk to you about. Mark Schofield, who I know does a lot of work with you. Um, Mark Schofield and I were at the Combine together, and Mark was banging the Skylar Thompson table, telling me that he thinks Skylar Thompson could be QB1 in this class, you know, talent-wise. And, and your RSP guide has Skylar Thompson as number one, as the, as QB one. And what I find really interesting is you're not necessarily banging the table for Skylar Thompson. You're looking at Skylar Thompson and, and you're in, in what you wrote, you're either like, he's either an anomaly and my process is all screwed up <laughs> or, right. or, or this guy is way undervalued. And, and I find that, I find that interesting because it's as, as much as you've studied, it's almost as if he confuses you. Well, the, 
the thing that confuses me is that no one's talking about him. And I've been doing, because I've been doing this for 17 years. Um, I, you know, I, I have, my guide is known for, especially the pre-draft because I do a pre-draft and post-draft guide and the pre-draft guide is known for not following what the NFL is doing or anybody else is doing. So I've often come up with, um, pre-draft rankings where it's based on the field and it's based on my process. And sometimes I'll have guys that people I'm much higher on or lower on than the consensus. And sometimes that works, you know, I mean, I've been, I was lower on Baker Mayfield, you know, I was lower on guys like that. Whereas I was higher on Russell Wilson and, and Patrick Mahomes and really liked them. I also love Chad Kelly as a player and Lamar Jackson, Chad Kelly had off field issues and really you know, basically um, killed his own opportunity in the NFL, unfortunately. But when I look at Thompson, the on field doesn't confuse me. It just confuses me. It confused me as I was writing it that I'm not hearing anyone talk about him. And so usually after, you know, after I do my evaluation, I start looking around. So I wrote my report after I kind of looked around and had already done my score and knew that he was going to be number one. And, you know, from experience, I have to say, listen, maybe there's something I'm missing here, you know, and that, that may not be true. I mean, um, but it's but I like to be kind of cautious about to people I'm recommending this to, because a lot of my readers are are NFL media or draft are also um, draft Knicks or or fantasy players and you know, I want to be open to them to say, Hey, listen, I'm not telling you that you would draft this guy in the first round because realistically he's probably not going to earn that draft capital. And that means he's going to have be having to work hard for his opportunity. And some teams, they have to get permission from the front office during um, camp to let players get more reps who are lower round picks. I mean, think of James Robinson with the Jaguars that had to happen with Doug Marone. He had to ask the front office if they could, if they could let him compete with equal number of reps with guys like Fournette and some of the earlier round players because he was looking good. And that tells you that it's not an open competition in most leagues. So the thing about Thompson is I love his skills and his pocket presence is I think the best in this class. He really understands how to preemptively move in a in an efficient way. He has a good feel for backside pressure and he can move either slowly or bait defenders within a step of him and move up. And so he's not he has he has just great awareness of how to move efficiently, but he's also mobile enough to be able to roll away or flush and by space and he can throw on the move. I think his accuracy is plus accuracy in terms of being able to deliver pinpoint um, the metrics that I've seen. Um, also, I just heard this yesterday from someone who's a former scout um, who actually was a former giant scout and a former Eagle scout and Dan Hatman. Um, he was looking at some data that he had access to and Skylar Thompson was one of the top 15 to 20 quarterbacks out of the 141 in the NCAA in a lot of accuracy categories that you might not, you know, the public wouldn't see. And that jives with what I had tracked with him. Um, I had shared my work with um, U.S. scouting director um, Russ Landy and told him, I said, you know, I've got a guy that, that I really am high on that just kind of breaks the curve of what I'm doing. 
And he, you know, he ran them through and, and Russ is known for quarterbacks as well. He was probably one of the few scouts who was high on Tom Brady many years ago, Tom Brady and Mark Bolger. He was known for being higher than the, uh, on that. And, and he said, I have a first round grade. I have a, or yeah, he had a first, he got a first round grade on him as well. And Dave Rosano, who is a scout who used to be with the Rams and the 49ers and Cardinals and his father help build the 49ers dynasty through the draft. Um, you know, Dave also has been taught. Apparently I found out earlier this week that Dave's been talking about Skylar Thompson as a, as a really good player and, you know, asking around with other scouts, the same thing that the thing that I heard from scouts in the league right now was plus arm plus accuracy, the arm or the arm is good. and wasn't plus arm was good enough to be a starter in the league, but not top 12, top 15 caliber um plus pocket presence plus accuracy and anticipation this the the but there wasn't enough quote tape to be an early round pick and i think what that is is that he just didn't have enough production for their mate their matrix to 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 give an early round grade to but this is someone who worked that that north dakota state west coast offense which is a pro offense um and had and was brought over to Kansas State um, by the offensive coordinator who worked with Carson Wentz and Trey Lance, and and you know this is a player in in Thompson who makes his own calls, who reads short to deep, which is more difficult to do. And I've I watched him, I watched a ton of games of him, and one of the things that really impressed me is that. He was the guy that set his team up for a lot of success. Whether they were able to convert it was a different story. But the year Joe Burrow and had Texas take LSU's national championship team to the limit, Skylar Thompson was basically basically won that game if his court if his receiver hadn't dropped a perfectly layered ball between two defenders in the end zone at the end of the game. And you know some of the throws he's made as Mark's would say he and I did a film room together at my site. Some of those throws that he made were, um, as Mark would say, put down the um, pen type of moments that were some of the best throws that we've seen on tape um, all year from any quarterback. You know, Matt, I don't want to, I don't want to spend all of our time on quarterback, but before we move to other positions, this is sort of a general thing that I think applies to all different positions that uh, that you study and, and, you know, all positions throughout the league. I think you kind of hit on this in talking about James Robinson a couple minutes ago. I think that for me, what people don't understand, they may look at the highlight films. They may look at, you know, some of the film sources that are out there. There is so much more for an NFL franchise that goes into drafting a player than, than what you and I see on the all 22 or on whatever film we've there's, there's salary cap. There's who's already on the roster. Who are we already committed to? Who can we sell to the fan base? You know, can, can we, can we draft Skylar Thompson and sell Skylar Thompson? If we leave Malik Willis on the board, you know, something, something like that. There's all, you know, there's always many more layers to it that, and there's much more information, interviews and medicals and all that stuff, all that stuff that we're not privy to. 
that, that goes into it. I'm sure you've heard a lot of that over the years. And you don't consider any of that. You're just looking right at, at what you see, correct? But, but I just want people to understand that there's so many more layers than just what we see on tape. Oh, without a doubt. And that's the thing is that, you know, character, personality and, and off field are of paramount importance to the NFL. And this is an area itself where the NFL has its own difficulties trying to suss through that. Um, you know, talking with some longtime people I know who've been in the league who have worked directly with GMs, you know, who are who are readers of the RSP. You know, we've had conversations about this where one of the things that the NFL is still trying to figure out is how to evaluate the off field because. You know, they finally got rid of the the wonder lick, which was a straight academic test for quarterbacks that really didn't capture what quarterbacking is about because quarterback decision-making is partially academic, but it's mostly an intuitive fusing of the technical, conceptual, and academic skills and doing it with the timing that you need to have as any onstage performer needs to have that timing. Think of a comedian who hits their mark or an actor who responds to what they see in a believable way. It's the same way when you read leverage. So with these types of things that they're evaluating, when you have scouts who are entry-level scouts, some teams use those scouts to give, to actually, as this guy would say, editorialize what they learn from the information they gain. And, you know, I'm sorry, but a 25 or 30 year old usually doesn't have the experience and wisdom and understanding of the world to be able to make an assessment about someone whose lifetime, whose life experiences are vastly different than their own and be able to make an accurate assessment of what that is. Sometimes 50 year olds don't have that, that have that capacity, which is why what was told to me is that the best teams usually have law enforcement and industrial psychologists who people who are specialized in these areas to be able to look at this information and then provide the either do the interview or take a look at the straight information without the editorializing and then provide their own take to it and deliver it. And the teams that do the best listen to it that way. And so all these things factor in. Um, in addition to you know how they work, what their confidence level is, how well they retain information and, and transfer it from the whiteboard, because you can memorize things well as a quarterback. But you know, Alex Smith was one of the smartest quarterbacks we saw academically. Same with Brandon Whedon. And if you look at both of those guys, some of the issues that they had were things that guys like Brett Favre or Steve McNair or Dan Marino, who were not good on the Wonderlick were MVP caliber players or MVP players because they were quick enough and confident enough that they knew what they saw and knew when to get out of it. And they didn't overthink of it. You know, some of these guys I would joke were like economists where it's like the economist, you know, knows the answer, but or probably knows the answer, but in order to, but in their discipline, they have to wait six months to tell you what actually happened. So, you know, if you're wanting to go, are we in a recession or an economist is going to sit, not going to, it's going to say, no, technically we're not. And then after the recession is over, they'll say, we were in a recession. Well, you can't <laughs> be that way as a quarterback. You right. can't go, it, this looks open. This looks like it's going to break open. That's when you need to throw the balls when it looks like it's going to break open. You can't go, I'm going to wait another two hitches 
And now that it's open, I'm going to throw it. Now you're behind. And that's right. what would happen in key moments with players like Alex Smith or Brandon Whedon and some other player and a lot of players in the NFL who pass the academic portion. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering, so you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected, and 24/7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Matt, I want to I want to move on to a couple of the other positions, and, and I want to start with the running back position. And I don't want to do the traditional, "Hey, Matt, let's talk about some day two guys," or let's then let's talk about some day three guys. What I want to do, I think there are two scenarios and maybe two types of running backs that the Giants might look at. So I'm going to play the role of Joe Shane. And I'm going to say to you, all right, I've got Saquon Barkley and he's got a year left and I've got Matt Breida and he's got a year left and I've got Antonio Williams. And I don't know what Antonio Williams is other than a practice squad guy. So a year from now, I might need a number one running back. So, and we're probably, we're not talking about day one because the giants aren't taking a running back on day one. We're talking about, a guy at 36 or a guy at 67 in the, in the third round. And we're talking about those kind of guys who can be number one running backs. Who are the guys, if, if you're in that scenario, if you're looking for that guy and you're Joe Shane, who would you, who would you be looking for? Sure. Well, let's get the top three out of the way because they may actually, one of them may actually fall to that range. And if they fall to 36, it's less likely due to anything off the field and more likely due to the fact that the running back position just isn't valued that highly. So if you, if Reese Hall, Kenneth Walker, or Isaiah Spiller fall to you, I think all three of them could work very well in an outside zone system. Um, if you run a little bit more um, gap, I think all three of them do that very well. Kenneth Walker could be a good duo um, runner. Walker is probably the most well-versed in all the, all the play types that you would want to run. So he's probably the most versatile in terms of between the tackles running. Um, but Spiller and Hall could be very good if you want to do things on the outside. Um, so those guys, will get them out of the way. Um, day three, you know, early day three or round three guys that might fit really well, where if you want a little bit of that, that speed, but can be inside. I'd, I like the local kid for you guys, Isaiah Pacheco out of Rutgers. Um, I think that a lot of people may be sleeping on him in the sense that this is a sturdy, explosive back. His decision-making flaws, that's what you'll hear about, is that he's kind of a flawed decision-maker. Um, but 
a lot of you've watched Rutgers football and you know that Isaiah Pacheco probably when he's watching his guards pull around, you know, to the, the play side that Pacheco could probably check his watch and decide, do I stand <laughs> here and wait to get planted on my behind or do I try and make a play and get the yards I can? Because I'm, I'm waiting on my guards to get to where they're supposed to be as opposed to, you know, the other. Yeah. With Pacheco, I was interested you know, in skimming through some of your stuff, I was interested to see uh, an Ahmad Bradshaw comparison sneak in there. Interesting. You know, that I, I saw him, honestly, I saw him a little bit more of a sturdier guy. I mean, I love Bradshaw, but as a little even bigger guy, because he can catch like Bradshaw, he's got great hand-eye coordination, but he's more in line of, I think he could be a sneaky good player that you would compare with, say, Cam Akers of the Rams. Um, I think he... He's more along those lines or at the low end of Kylan Hill, who was with the Packers, who looked pretty darn good in camp before he had a urinate knee injury. Um, Jerome Ford, Kevin Harris are both guys that I think are also third round caliber options who catch the ball very well in the middle of the field. Um, they can run inside. Harris is a powerful back, but they also have the ex short area explosion and burst you're looking for that can, that can do very well. If you're looking for the, you know, home run type of players, you, you know, maybe I, I'm, I like them less than the, the four I've mentioned, but Pierre strong um, out of South Dakota state and um, Zaquan, um, Zaquandre white out of South Carolina are, dynamic speedsters with great movement skills who could be very good in, in a zone scheme or even some gap plays, um, you, you know, but they, the outside zone would be their best, their, their best thing. But Pierre strong is kind of like a Raheem aspiring Raheem Mostert in terms of, you know, being able to take it to the house with his speed. He has some things he has to learn um, in terms of, his footwork and alignment so he doesn't fall down so much with cutting um, in some areas that I think need to get better. Um, and pass protection is going to be a little bit of work. And then, um, you know, Zaquandre White to me is the type of guy that if, if my skills weren't in scouting and were in coaching running backs, um, I would want Zaquandre White as my pupil because he has a lot of the – he's basically reacting to what he sees on the field and what he does reaction wise is very athletic and very skilled. Um, but a lot like Kenyon Drake, when Kenyon Drake came into the league, he's not efficient with his footwork. So he makes cuts that can be athletic and be beautiful and highlights that people will love, but they're not efficient enough to get yards in difficult situations um, without having to expend a lot of energy, but he catches well and he has great burst and speed and he's got power he can run for power if he can maximize that so there's a lot of backs in this class but those are some of the ones that i would love to see and the last two i'll mention who may be my favorites of the of the group um are the the final three actually are zamir white of georgia kennedy brooks of oklahoma and keontae ingram former texas back of usc i think all three of those backs um if you go to day three to get, they might be able to give you starter production. I think Brooks is the least athletic of the three, um, but he may be the most patient runner in this class. He may have the most subtle um, skill sets that work well in this class. 
um, you know, and the way that Frank Gore understood pre-snap where to go, how to set up defenders, how to move efficiently to get yardage even at his ripe old age before he retired and was annoying the fantasy industry for years <laughs> uh, because he would come in and ruin their backfield. But he was, you know, coaches could count on him. Kennedy Brooks is that type of player. I interviewed DeMarco Murray before he went pro, and he's now coaching the Oklahoma running backs. And I kind of know what DeMarco Murray, what his learning curve was entering the league and what he was valuing. And the fact that he would say Kennedy Brooks is the type of back that we've had a lot more better athletes in this, in this, in these, um, you know, at Oklahoma um, during his time, but we couldn't get him off the field because he just gains yards. Like you may not be able to explain it athletically, but he has, and what I say is he has those micro movements that the top backs have the ability to make the subtle moves to avoid angles that create space. Keontae Ingram has more burst, has more short area acceleration to change direction. He reminds me of like a Chris Ivory type of back um, who was kind of a Marshawn Lynch starter kit, if you think of it in that way. Um, I would say that with his receiving skills, he, he's more of an aspiring Kareem Hunt, which ain't bad either. Um, and then Zamir White isn't as nifty as any of those backs, but he's more powerful. He's His blocking and his receiving are competent and should get better. He reminds me more of a mix of, say, a more powerful Ronald Jones, who has been one of the more powerful backs in the league after contact in recent years, um, a more technically advanced guy in terms of reading blocks, and then maybe more in the line of what Thomas Jones was back in the day when he was a bear um, and he had some of those thousand yard seasons. So Zamir White, hard worker, he runs like he's 220. He's only 206, but, um, but he might add some weight. Before I move on to the other sort of subset of backs that I wanted to ask you about, I have questions about two of those guys and they're two of the top three questions about Isaiah Spiller and questions about Kenneth Walker. When I watched Kenneth Walker, I love what he does with the ball in his hands. But when I read your, your breakdown of him, and you saw a lot more of Walker than I saw. I watched a guy block who looked to me like he blocked like he was trying not to get hurt. You know, he blocked like he blocked like he had no interest and he was just trying not to get hurt so he could get to the next play and get the ball back in his hands. Um, you were a little bit more optimistic about his blocking ability. So I, I'm just curious, uh, just for your thoughts on on that aspect of Walker's game. Sure. And I think that there are moments where you're going to catch players in those situations. And, and so, um, you know, with the sample size that I watched with him, he I saw him take on linebackers and do a very good job of that, especially up the middle. Um I saw him in situations where he was cut blocking, where he picked up edge pressure. And that the, to me, the, the issue with him more than anything was diagnostic skills. And, um, and, you know, if I see a player or two that are bad, that's bad in terms of, you know, effort or form. If I, um, I tend to note that, but I look at a guy like Jonathan Taylor, who, I remember noting that if Jonathan Taylor, Jonathan Taylor was an extremely, is an extremely intelligent man who, you know, was an accepted into an Ivy league school. And I think an 
you know, in an engineering program, um, but decided to go to Wisconsin, which obviously wasn't shabby either. But he, I would say that one of the things that he was most skilled at as a football player was making it look like on tape that he was making an effort when he really wasn't as a blocker. <laughs> <laughs> like if there was someone that could look that make it look like they tried when they really didn't, I thought Jonathan Taylor was a genius at that. Um, <laughs> but he, in the NFL, you have to block and he definitely developed that way. And there's a lot of guys like that, that you'll catch moments on tape where it's like, they know they're going to get in trouble if they don't do it. So they've got to, they, they learn how to game the system a bit. Um, but Walker, I didn't see that with as much. What I saw was more than anything, maybe certain diagnoses with blitzes that if two defenders were coming at the same time, he didn't know which, which guy to, to pick up was his. And so making sure he's on the same page with his linemen on the, on the, the scheme of how they were going to handle the assignments was more important. And then maybe some little things with developing a punch um, where he's not just one strike and then a speed bump on the way to the, the um, defender. But I saw enough good things put together at, at once technically and conceptually that I think he'll be decent. The other question that I had, Isaiah Spiller, you obviously automatically put him in your top three. He was generally in the top two or three when the quote-unquote draft process started a while ago. And lately, you continue to read, oh, maybe he's going to slide. You know, maybe he's going to go down. Maybe he's going to be, you know, he's going to last a lot longer in the draft class than, than people thought. Do you, do you understand the slide? Do you, do you have any idea what it, uh, you know, the reason for it? Yeah, yeah. And it's, and it's really based on something that shouldn't be as important as it is for running back play. And that's the 40 time that, that four, six, three, 40, um, you know, teams want backs who run at least in the mid four fives, if not ideally in the mid four fours um, and teams get decision makers, get really fixated and coach some coaches too on speed the faster the better but here's the problem with that and i and i say this and i'm going to explain it because it's going to sound kind of kind of raunchy when i say it this way um but not too too bad for your podcast here but i've always joked that speed is the cleavage of the nfl decision maker and if you think about you know in our society where um you know there's nothing wrong with someone who wants to dress the dress that way and, and to be able to reveal themselves in the way that their shape is, and that's fine. But there's a time and place and setting of how much you want to do that without basically saying, you know, making a statement that may run counter to what your intention is. And, and there are also people that understand that they're going to game the system when they, when they do that. And they're going to have someone who's actually, they want the person, their eyes, not on their eyes. They want their eyes somewhere else. And I'm not saying you know, I'm just saying this is human behavior. And, and so mm -hmm. what happens is that human behavior does that. And you'll see people who respond to that and, and are biased to it, to the point that they end up overlooking the other qualities of that person for that person's detriment or benefit. You know, nowadays it's more for their detriment than it is for their benefit. But there was a time 
way back in the day that it was probably more for the ben their benefit, at least to get a job, you know? So, you know, sp speed is the type of thing that NFL decision makers, especially owners and, and executives, unfortunately, still sometimes overlook the, all the work that their scouting staff does and counterman things by saying, well, what is the certain four-letter word.com network like, um, you know, based on what their commentators are saying? And speed, the idea of a back who can win from any, uh, earn a, a touchdown from anywhere on the field has great appeal. But, you know, Saquon Barkley certainly had that speed. But the difference between Barkley and a lot of backs who just are speedy is that he has all the other tools you're looking for. Um, and so what happens in reverse is that if you place speed too high on your on your your scale of what's important from a running back then you have backs like Anthony McFarlane or Tevin Coleman um you know Chris Henry who the Titans drafted in the first round way back in the day Bishop Sankey a lot of backs who fail out because the more important metric is actually the 20 shuttle and the three cone drill um because you're talking about quick acceleration and change of direction you need to get to your top speed fast not whether you can get to a top speed 20 30 yards down the field it's can it's you the, get to the hole yeah can it's, you can get you, to and through the hole right yeah and can you avoid somebody and then re-accelerate and get to the hole and so it's that stop start acceleration it's that accelerating through cuts and spiller has all that spiller has some of the best footwork in this class um the issue with him is that he does make some immature decisions with certain fundamental um, um, rules with blocking on, say, counter. But not many teams run counter in the NFL. So, you know, if, you're, if you're a gap team, he may not be as good of a gap player as you want. But if you're an outside zone team or run some inside zone plays with lead blocking, I think he'll be fine. And even with the, the issues he has with, with the with the schemes a little bit here and there they're they're correctable they're not difficult and this is a guy who's worked enough at his craft that even though he runs a four six three arian foster ran a worse time than that and he was quick enough and spiller's quick enough there are a lot of players like that who ran that four six times so for scouts they won't worry about it but for decision makers they might say well if we can have everything then we want the cleavage too and that's basically <laughs> what they're, that's what's going to happen. And he'll fall as a result of that. Yep. Hey, Matt, the other category, we, we've already talked about a lot of backs, but there's a second category of back and it's not the bell cow back. And, and what I, what I keep hearing some speculation about is that the giants are looking for the compliment to Barkley, the, the third down back, the guy that can handle, I mean, not just the scat back duties in the past the, and, the, and the catching the ball, but can handle the, the blocking assignments and all of that. Are there a handful of, of guys in this class who, who really profile as, as, you know, maybe, maybe not, you know, heavy volume runners, but, but guys that, that, are, that are third down backs that can handle the other aspects of that job? Sure, there are, you know, and there are even some guys who can do it all. One guy I just didn't mention who certainly would be on that list who you could start off as a third down and short yardage back and then move him into the starting role would be Brian Robinson Jr. of Alabama. 
He's one of the better blockers in this class. He's got soft hands as a receiver. Does a great job with that. Same with Keontae Ingram. He's he's a very good receiver. He has to get a little bit better as a blocker. Brooks is a smart player who's built a little bit more like he's on that upper end of the scat back range that maybe if he adds another five to seven pounds, he'll be in that every down back range. But he give you a little bit of what James White and Bilal Powell used to be able to give some of the New York and New England teams you know, in terms of what they had there. So those guys fit that. But a guy like Jerry and Ely, um, Jerry and Ely is a decent blocker. He's an excellent receiver and he's, and he can run between the tackles if you need him to be the player. I comped him to giants fans are very well familiar with is Dave Meggett. Um, you know, he's kind of an aspiring Dave Meggett type of player. Um, you, you know, Damian Pierce is probably the player that if you believe that he, you know, if you believe that he can be an every down runner, um, he would be a boon for this team because he is a 5'10, 218 pound back with excellent receiving skills. And he's a, he's a blocker who he has to learn not to drop his head because he's trying to deliver like death blows every time he hits people. But he's got a lot of that Marion Barber, Carlos Hyde kind of skill set that can be expressed as a, as a good contributor. Another one that might be worth giving a shot to later who might surprise you as an every down runner one day, but if he doesn't, he can give you years as a great compliment who can carry the load. If an injury strikes is Tyrion Davis price of LSU. Some of the best tape I saw as a pass protector was from him. Watch him against UCLA in the opener, and he had almost a clinic. I need to actually go back and do a film room on that guy. But he's six eleven, six feet two eleven. He ran a four for eight forty, and he was the one guy that kind of shocked me with his speed. Um, but he gives you that kind of Ryan Grant of the Packers, Chris Carson type of potential, and you could use him in a variety of ways because he catches well, he runs well, um, but he's a very good pass protector for his experience level and should only get better. By the way, I did, uh, I did want to mention that I got a kick out of skimming through your review of Kyron Williams of Notre Dame and, and seeing, do you remember what you wrote as his floor? You know, don't uh, look, don't look. Oh, you remember what you wrote? No, I don't. Who was his floor? An alternate league. That's it. Yes. (laughs) You wrote an alternate league. Yeah. 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 And that's, and a lot of those guys, I mean, and you know, part of it too is, you know, I do have CFL people who look at what's going on here and things like that. So, so, but when I look at Williams, I mean, I just never saw it with him anyway. So um, even before the combine, you know, you could see that even people will look at that North Carolina run that he had. It was like a 97 yard reverse field run. And if you analyze that from the all 22, you learn very quickly that this was a conflation of there's a perfect storm of factors that worked in his favor um, to be able to gain that kind of yardage and run that way. And people will see those highlights on loop and go, he's fast. And you find out that he, his acceleration and speed weren't enough to consistently beat linebackers unless the, the alignments were in a perfect configuration for him to be able to build up speed and just maintain his separation that he got early. So he's a good receiver. He's a willing blocker for sure. Um, but 
I don't think the athletic ability is on the tier that you're looking for from a future back in the same way that Travion Williams of Texas A&M was played up by the media a lot, but has been stuck in Cincinnati is like the fourth or fifth back on their depth chart. All right. Hey, let's talk about wide receivers and I need to start by expressing my, my really, really deep disappointment that you have completely stuck a pin. You've burst my bubble when it comes to my man crush for it, of, among wide receivers in this draft. You completely, oh, you completely oh, no. killed my man crush on George Pickens. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. There's well, still hope well, for that, though. Because I, I think that I fit in the category with Pickens that you talked about, probably of, of being really attracted to the highlight reel. So I really just want you to talk about Pickens because I look at Pickens and I think that, I think that what really got me was I kept looking at Pickens and I kept looking at, at how little the giants got out of Kenny Galladay last year. And I kept looking at Pickens and thinking George Pickens is what Kenny Galladay was supposed to be for the giants. Yeah, And I think that's what keeps attracting me to Pickens. So just, just talk to me about Pickens a little bit before we talk yeah. about other guys. And, you know, I worked at the University of Georgia for 10 years. I graduated from there. I used to even cover the football team back in the day when Heinz Ward and Terrell Davis were, um, you know, were roaming those practice fields. But, um, you know, I remember Pickens' entrance into to Georgia, and he made one of the most incredible catches you'll see um, on the practice field that is making its rounds. And his, some of his highlight tape is fantastic. Um, he earned a grade for me that is still what's called a contributor level talent, meaning that right now, if he get he you know he when he gets drafted, barring whatever the receiving core is like and what his work habits are like, what he's shown on the field is good enough to play right now and, and actually deliver production and grow into a starter. So I still think there's a lot of reasons to like George Pickens, but is he the one of the highest-ranked players on my board at that position? Absolutely not. He's in my top 15, but on the lower end of that. And the reason being is that Pickens makes the highlight plays, but when you're talking about you know, getting off the getting off the jam and being able to release, he still has some work to do, and he has to get better with putting that all together. When it comes to winning those highlight plays, he's great at being able to use his natural hand-eye coordination to adjust his body to where the ball is. But here's the thing. Do you want a guy who has to constantly react to the ball on where it is because he created the scenario where he has to make this crazy athletic move, or do you want the, the player like Jamar chase or Stefan Diggs, who knows when to time his jump and position his body so that the catch looks much easier and winds up being much easier than, than what George Pickens made it out to be. And part of that is with the jump back technique is that a lot of players who are bigger, taller players, they, it, they're late with their jump. And when you're late with your jump back, instead of what happens is that these are for underthrown balls and back shoulder fades, any contested catch. 
when you have to, when you, you stop and turn and jump, you want to do it early enough so that you can jump straight up into the air so that your back is now to the defender who's covering you. What happens when you jump late, like Pickens or a Colin Johnson, who the former Texas star, who's also been had some time with the Giants or a Galladay sometimes, is that when you jump late, you end up having to um, lean backwards towards the ball because now the ball is over your head because you mistimed it. And now you're leaning back and doing kind of a reverse swan dive towards the defender who's at your back. And now you've opened your body and hands to the defender and you've made the, the, the catch far more difficult and it's going to be contested. Pickens has to learn these body positioning tactics. He has some things with his hands that he's got to straighten out. So there's a lot of little details with his game that can get better. But, they're all, but the more details that they have to learn, the further away they are from really becoming that primary guy. The athletic ability is there. The hand-eye coordination is there. The rest he has to work on. And, and at this stage of, the, of their development, um, that's not always a given. Sometimes they have early success and they think they've made it. Because again, these guys are under 25, you know, the, the world's still this kind of foggy place. I'm just telling you, if you're listening to this under 25, you know, you know, you know, like you're trying to have it all figured out, but trust me, when you hit 30, you're going to look back and go, wow. You know, I was all excited about going into the war that life can be and having my glory. And then I look back after all the, the artillery shells and the, and the smoke and, all of that. And I got past the front and I thought, wow, I didn't know anything back then. I was an adult, but I was not like, uh, you know, and these guys are doing that with the fame element and the money element and the high pressure element with it. Sometimes they, if they have early success, they're like, oh, I've got this figured out. And then suddenly teams adjust and they haven't figured out how to work. So that's the risk with George Pickens. If he figures out how to work, he can be a star. If he doesn't, he can be a guy that will be on, you know, four or five different teams bouncing around the NFL as a reserve who everyone hopes maybe he figures it out, but never does. All right. There is one more guy that I want to talk about before we talk in general about wide receivers. And Matt, I have to tell you that I think I discovered that you have a tell. Yeah. You have a tell when it comes to players who you really, really like. Yeah. You know what that tell is? What is it? How many videos are attached to a certain player's profile? Uh, uh. Go back and look at your guide. I think there are more Justin Ross videos in your guide than there are of any other wide receiver that you studied. I, and I think it's by a wide, wide margin. And then I read and I find out that he's one of your favorites. Yeah. So I think, I think you have a tell. So, so what I'm going to ask you to do is just talk about Justin Ross and tell me why you like him so much. Yeah. And the tell is probably because it usually the tell that's a good tell. And I'll tell you, and I'll explain why is that if I have a lot, if I have a guy ranked highly and there's a lot of videos next to him, it means that, that he's a complex evaluation for a certain reason. And I had to, watch a lot more tape to get the things I needed to see out of his game to be sure about. Um, I want, because the year that I had Nick Chubb over Saquon Barkley, just by the smallest amount and was because um, 
he had the knee injury that where he tore three ligaments in the knee after he started off gangbusters. And everyone that I was hearing about was saying that he had lost something. And the more I watched, the less I saw anything lost and I couldn't understand. So I felt like I had to be absolutely sure. I probably watched more tape of Nick Chubb than any, any player I've ever studied um, because I wanted to be sure about that. Well, with Justin Ross, you know, he had that cervical spinal congenital issue that he had to get corrected. And that meant that, you know, he had a very rigorous rehab process, um, lost a lot of weight and had to come back. And, you know, it's not like at six, three, two, ten, you're heavy anyway, but to have to come back and rebuild your, your physicality and get back onto the field after that. And only to break the fifth metatarsal in your, in your foot, have a Jones fracture, which is that bone that runs along your pinky toe all the way up the side of your foot. And to find out at the end of the year that he played all year on this fracture, um, you, you know, that limited him too. So I wanted to look at his game before and after um, the injuries um, or before and during the injuries, let's put it that way, with the Jones fracture and before and after with, in terms of Trev, Trevor um, Lawrence as his quarterback. And the more I watched his game, the, the less difference I saw in him before and after. The only real thing that I saw different with Justin Ross during the, the injury with the foot was that I kept noting that he either fell down when he was trying to run and make people miss or that his moves weren't very explosive. And this was before knowing that he had the foot injury. So when, when you add this up, what I saw, you know, what Justin Ross was a player who really understands how to dictate man-to-man coverage. He can get off press coverage pretty well. And where he couldn't, you can justify the foot injury, made him less explosive, and it made it harder for him to cut on. I mean, he was shot up with Toradol and probably wore off by halftime. And there were things that you were going to see with that. Um, but he, winning the football, dictating angles so that he could get open, you know, working the middle of the field, working the perimeter, seemed to have enough speed to be able to outrun people um, earlier in his career. So then, uh, you know, you look at the combine and he ran a four, five, six and jumped a 31 and a half vertical. And you think, well, that's not all that impressive for a top receiver. I mean, four, five, six, that's, you know, that might as well be four, six, you know, CJ Spiller's time you know as a running back if you convert it and go uh people aren't going to like that you want four three four four for especially for his size but here's the thing you played on the jones he played on the jones fracture all year and then got surgery in mid-november well usually when you just hurt the thing and find out you hurt you, you got a stress fracture it takes six to eight weeks to recover from that he played on it all year so he probably did he probably messed it up worse had six to eight, we gave him eight weeks for surgery and immobilization. He was immobile for eight weeks. Maybe they had him running on a, maybe they had him on a bike or working in a pool, but you know, the stress of running and cutting, he didn't do that for six to eight weeks. And then he only had six weeks to get ready to the combine once they, once they got the cast off and once he was pronounced fit. So he had six weeks to go from being immobile to running a four, five, six, 40, what that tells me. And I ran this by some people I know who have real medical expertise applied to the NFL and actually worked with the NFL in biomechanics and analytics and scouting. 
And I asked him, I said, this is my theory. What do you have to say? And he said, man, I'd be shocked if he ran or jumped or cut anywhere near what he's capable of at the combine. So I agree with you. A four, five, six is actually pretty impressive for a guy with that issue. So to me, as, as I'll credit Nick Martin, a Steelers writer who said this to me, um, he said, I think Justin Ross could be the Nick Chubb of the wide receiver class in this year where he comes into a camp and the, the team that drafts him goes, he's far more explosive than we imagined he was than he looked to us last year. And I, he could arguably wind up being one of the best receivers in this class if the injuries don't um, derail him. All right, let's talk about wide receiver in a little bit more depth. Now, we can kind of bypass the, the Drake Londons and Chris Olaves and Jamison Williams because those guys are not going to the Giants in round one. But yeah. you look at the Giants, and, and I look at wide receiver as the Giants have needs all over the place. But I look at wide receiver as an underrated need despite all of the the capital they've put into it with Kenny Galladay and Kadarius Tony and Darius Slayton a couple of years ago, and they still have Sterling Shepard. So I'm looking just at, you know, not round one guys, but just, just some other guys who are your favorites guys who you would say, if, if Joe Shane, you know, pulls the trigger on one of these guys at any point, you know, in the, the last two days of the draft, you would say, that's a good pick. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's a guy that's going to be productive in the NFL. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about your depth chart because it's an interesting one. You know, Galladay to me is he was at his best when he was at Detroit, where he was essentially helped out by having Golden Tate on one side and Marvin Jones on the other, and they could put Galladay in the slot as a big slot guy against nickel corners where he was um, bigger and faster against nickel corners or safeties, and he could use his athletic ability, and his route running wasn't leaned on as much. As a primary guy on the outside, your best guy is probably going to be Kadarius Tony if they want to use him outside, um, mainly because he's so good inside but the quickness, the ability to get off press is the potentials there. So as long as he stays healthy, I think you guys did a great job of being able to get a guy like Tony. Now, the surprise player in your group that is probably not talked about much, but I can't wait to see what he does is Richie James. Richie James, there's a lot of there's a lot of a let's say Antonio Brown starter kit on the field with Richie James and the, the San Francisco 49ers, Kyle Shanahan is a system guy and system guys tend to ignore good players and don't put them in, don't fit them to the, to their system. They find the player or they don't fit the system to the player. They fit the, the system. They fit the player into the system and force them in there. And James kind of got boxed out. But he had some huge games for 49ers when they needed him. And they, I would jokingly say, reluctantly put him into the game. And when they did, he was excellent. I would not be shocked if Richie James comes into the Giants and looks like one of the better receivers on, in your camp. 
but that's wow. A, that is that is that is not a name I thought we were going to be talking about today. But yeah. that is, but that's an interesting, uh, an yeah. interesting name for uh, for all of us to watch. Yeah, keep an eye on him because he could win outside. He's very good inside. He's excellent after the catch. Um, he can even run run the ball. Um, you know that's what he did. Um, I believe it was Middle Tennessee State. Maybe that's where he was at. I don't remember what it was at or Memphis. I think it was Middle Tennessee State. But this is he's a very good player that I think is going to be sneaky good for, for your team. Hopefully he gets that opportunity. And Shepard, as we know, he's reliable. Um, you know, he can play inside and outside for you, but he's not he's a matchup problem as a consummate route runner, but not necessarily his athletic ability. What hasn't been expressed to its fullest based on what maybe we saw in college, but he's reliable. He's a good starter. So, you know, knowing that maybe, you know, looking at this team, I would say, you know, a guy like Khalil Shakur out of Boise state is one of my favorites. He's a six feet, 190 pound option with four, four, three speed. He's quick enough. He can give you that inside presence as a slot who can win and understands how to get open against zone coverage. He's very good at transitioning downhill as a runner, and he's a tough runner who may not break a ton of tackles, but he knows how to finish, He and he makes people miss, and he has the acceleration in the open field. He has some issues with how he uses his hands to catch the ball that are minor that he'll have some drops early in his career, kind of like Deontay Johnson or Cortland Sutton, where he claps onto the ball um, rather than meeting the ball with his hands in the position they need to be at. But he also makes some of the best highlight reel catches of this class. So the hand-eye coordination, the body control, the jump back abilities there, he can learn to be an outside guy. He reminds me a lot of Deontay Johnson. I think he'd be a good fit because you give yourself some flexibility. And Brian Dable, what he did in Buffalo, he had a system, but he seemed flexible to figuring out what was best for his quarterback and what kind of players he needed to have around it. And if you could have the Tony's flexible, Shakir's flexible. I'd say Galladay's a little more inflexible in terms of the best way to use him. James is flexible. You can kind of mix and match what works well there. Now, if you want someone who can be a big slot for you, um, David Bell, you know, his 46540 is awful. Um, but I think as a football player, he's one of the better football players in this class. And he's kind of, if he can prove that he's like a, a you know, a Devin Singletary of wide receivers where, you know, he the athletic ability isn't great, but everything else is, he could become a very good big slot player for you, kind of in the way that Fitzgerald was, Larry Fitzgerald at the end of his career. Um, Alec Pierce, Christian Watson probably won't last that long, but they're both guys that I think can become very good outside receivers. And I'd say Jalen Tolbert of South Alabama certainly fits that realm. And if you're looking for two guys who give you the possession potential and the size um, to become good possession receivers, maybe even plus possession receivers, Makai Polk of Mississippi State and Eric Ezukanma of Texas Tech are fascinating. And then I'll end with a guy like Calvin Austin of Memphis, who at 5'8", 170, really isn't big enough to ride the ride. And they already have a guy like Richie James and Kadarius Tony, who already fit the bill for what Austin provides. But if you want to go 
that route of maybe unlocking high upside, but knowing that if your floor is a, you can use them as an Isaiah McKenzie slot type receiver, like Ben, Ben Fennell of NFL um, films has compared them to um, you can get that, but he might, his positioning at the catch point is very strong. And if he proves in a camp that he can beat your top corners, when he comes in with some of these types of plays, you might've found something that's even more than that. But those are some of the players that really um, appeal to me in those, you know, early day three or late day two. Interesting, Matt. Let's talk finally about the tight end position. Um, I kind of want, you know, the, the Giants are basically remaking their tight end position. Evan Ingram went to Jacksonville. They cut both Kyle Rudolph and, and, and Caden Smith. So they, they signed Ricky Seals-Jones. I look at that as kind of a stopgap kind of a thing. Just, uh, you know, he's, he's been kind of a, a decent journeyman. So they're, they could do just about anything at tight end. Um, I kind of want you to talk about the, the tight end class in general, but there are really, I think when I, when I look at tight end, there are three guys that I'd really like you to talk about a little bit. And that's Trey McBride, who I know most people have as tight end one, which you do as well. Um, Cade Otten, specifically because in your guide, you mentioned the Giants as a possibility for him. And I find that interesting for the simple reason that Brian Dable is the head coach, but Mike Kafka is the offensive coordinator and, and we don't know exactly what the Giants' offensive scheme, offensive system is going to look like. We really have no idea. And, and the third guy that I really kind of want you to talk about a little bit is Isaiah Likely. And, and I'll just comment on Isaiah Likely quickly. I love I, – I look at Isaiah Likely, and I, I think he might be the most explosive tight end in the class just in terms of what he can do once you get the ball into his hands. And yet he scares me because I see a lot of Evan Ingram in, and, and that scares me. So just talk about the class in general. And I would appreciate some thoughts in, you know, in, in specific about those three guys. Absolutely. So the, this is the way we evaluate tight ends. I mean, it's, it's interesting for the, to look at it different in terms of how the NFL evaluates it. You have the Bill Belichick school, which is, look, I can find a blocker. Um, in the late rounds if I can find a guy who can do both in the early rounds absolutely going to go for that guy as the top of my board but primarily I'm looking for players who are better receivers than blockers um, because I want to be able to use them as matchup um, you know favorable matchups for in my passing game Um, so some teams do that some teams are more we want a mix of both and or that the or the the receiving is only going to be emphasized in the short area, the short zones of the passing game. So guys like Jeremy Ruckert may get more love by the NFL media who follows more of the traditional scouting approach. And that, you know, he's a guy that's not a matchup um, advantage for you. You're not, you, he can play in the slot. You can have him run seam routes, but he's not he's, going to be the matchup advantage guy. He's Caden Smith. Exactly. That's exactly Mm -hmm. it. He is Caden Mm -hmm. Smith. So um, this class has a lot of players who will probably get drafted on day three 
who have more of that upside ability to be more of a um, Zach Ertz type of player or Mark Andrews type of player or Evan Ingram. And, and so um, the guys at the top of the board, Trey McBride, obviously he's the one who has both skill sets at a high level. Now he's not at Kyle Pitts's level, but I'd say he's close to, um, you know, Pat Fryermuth, who I loved last year. And, you know, he's in that range and he's a, he's, he's more of an H back in size right now, but he can handle himself at the line of scrimmage. He'll be helpful. He can handle one-on-one on the backside. He'll be able to help out with a little bit of help on a double team, maybe with a second tight end or a back on the front side. He'll be an asset with a, uh, a tackle on the front side on double teams like that. And then he's more than just a short range receiver. He's, you know, he's pretty explosive um, in terms of being able to get down, down field. He may not match up well all the time against um, cornerbacks split outside, but put him in the slot and he'll be fine. And he has excellent technique catching the ball, especially away from his frame. He's very good at reaching away, having a wide catch radius and being able to do it with technically solid hands and taking contact. And he's niftier than you would expect because when you watch him run, he kind of looks like, I don't know, I don't remember who this guy was, but the old Warner Brothers, like that big red hairy thing that Bugs Bunny would deal with. <laughs> he kind of looks like that that guy in terms of the way he runs, like whether it's Marvin the Monster or whatever it is. Um, but mm-hmm. he, was, he, he runs on a big hulking kind of gait, and he's very like big pads and kind of hammers down on people and he can definitely push a pile and create scrums and and break tackles but one of the things that he does that's kind of um underrated about his game is he's very good at getting his legs up and getting his knees high and he gets away from a lot of low shots that you would not expect so mcbride to me is is probably easily the best option for the giants if he they can get him um and for all the reasons stated Otten, I like a lot. And, and the thing about Otten is that he is probably the better blocker. He's probably the best blocker in this class at the top of the board of guys that you're going to say have the receiving and blocking appeal. One of the things that he does very well is he understands the leverage of defenders and knows when he's at a point that he can get into position to make the defender um, go too far in the direction that he originally wanted to go. So he basically takes the defender where he wants them. Um, say, oh, you want to go to the left? Fine. I'm going to take you to the left, but you're going to wind up overrunning the play because I'm going to I'm going to use your leverage against you. And and he's great at that. Um, so he's a reliable blocker who you can use on the front side and should grow into the role and get to about 255, 260, and and be able to block in line for you but he's also excellent against contact in the middle of the field. So if you need him to be that, that middle of the field play action option, um, the short zone um, dump off, check down outlet player, he's going to be able to post up on a linebacker, make the play, take the hard hit, and then be smart enough too to use his frame and position to get the tough yards. I think he's one of the smarter tight ends in this class. And he will be a real, he'll be like, um, who was 
you just named the Stanford kid who was with the Giants for um, until last year. Caden um, Conrad. Caden like Smith. Smith. He's like Caden Smith plus. Okay. Like he's, he's a more plus receiver version of Caden Smith who didn't get um, used as well as he could have been last year due to quarterback play. Um, so he's fun. Likely to me is the most intriguing tight end of this group, because when you look at his combine, the explosion doesn't show up as well at, on the combine as it may look on tape because he ran a 4840, 4.57, 4.57, shuttle, which is pretty slow. Um, you know, a 7.333 cone drill, which isn't all that quick, but 36 vertical, you know, and that 36 vertical tells me something. And what that says is that Isaiah likely playing at Coastal Carolina doesn't, Coastal Carolina doesn't get the funding of, you know, a Washington or a Michigan or a, a Georgia or Texas or LSU. And that funding is really where that funding goes is into the athletic training and development and conditioning programs um, and the resources that are available to maximize what these players can do and being able to put them on that type of program. So if the NFL drafts him inside the fourth round, say like, th you know, third round or even higher, then I bet scouts and decision makers have looked at his workouts and said, we're not worried about that because we think we get him into an NFL strength and conditioning program. He's going to add more quick twitch explosive muscle that's already there, but needs to be exploited more. And it's going to maximize those skills. And that explosion is going to translate to the NFL. If he gets drafted at late in the fourth round and more into the fifth or sixth round or the seventh round, then they believe that he's a limited athlete. He's not going to develop anymore. And what you have is a guy who catches the ball really well, who understands how to run the ball. Well, great catch radius, um, you know, but may not be his athletic ability may be max maxed out at this point and he's not going to be the matchup player that he looks like as a small school option so the the draft capital will probably tell you the story of what the scouts and decision makers have determined from their workouts with him hey matt we could talk all day and i could ask you you know questions about tons of of other players but uh, I know that uh, that I can't take your entire day. <laughs> so <laughs> so so uh, why don't you uh, let folks know where they can uh, where they can get the RSP and uh, and where they can find all your work if they aren't already familiar before I let you go. Absolutely. You can find me on YouTube at Matt Waldman's RSP Film Room. I think I have probably over 500 videos up with, um, you know, studying prospects over the past 10 years. Um, and, you know, with various people, including some former players or current players. Um, and I, and I, I take you through a lot of my process with that. The rookie scouting portfolio, as we talked about at the beginning of the show, it is one of the most comprehensive looks at skill position players. You get a pre-draft um, publication that's available now, a post-draft publication if you're a fantasy player. And I've been a fantasy writer for the past 17 years as well. So I give you things that are geared towards that as well as looking at fit with the post draft and you get put on a newsletter throughout the year that updates you on this class as well as the next class um, that gets emailed out through December. Um, so you get all of that for $21.95 and um, you know, a percentage of that up to $5,000 I donate to an organization called Darkness to Light. And I've been doing this 
for the past 10 years, I believe, um, we've raised over $50,000 to Darkness to Light, and they're an organization devoted to preventing sexual abuse of children um, through educational programs, as well as um, helping um, individuals and organizations understand how to approach the issue when something is unfortunately reported, because a lot of the trauma that happens to children is through well-meaning adults who don't understand how to approach the issue when it's brought up. Um, and, and so it's a great cause. And April is um, Child Abuse Prevention Month. So it's good timing. You can get a draft guide that, you know, that a lot of NFL resources use as a cross-checking device um, that, that you'll find worthwhile and, and entertaining. And you can be doing some help as well and helping me donate to that cause um, you, you know, as well. So you find all of that at mattwaldman.com, W-A-L-D-M-A-N.com. Giants fans, it's a, a worthwhile cause, absolutely. And also, if you simply want to make yourself a smarter football fan, it's, it's absolutely worth the money. So Matt, thank you very, very much as always for, uh, for stopping by, do yourself a favor. You know, you've, you've, you've written the guide now you've, you've done my show now, just take a few weeks off. That's right. That's all I need to do. You know? So, <laughs> so I, for me, I'm taking some time off, you know, the fact oh. that, you know, so it's good, but Ed, thanks so much for having me on. It's always a pleasure getting to do this. All right, Matt. Thank you. Giants fans. Thank you as always for listening. Please remember, stay safe out there, take care of each other, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. First thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on home mom? <laughs> no. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder. But you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this. High-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.